Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A one-hour special supply chain shock. We rejoin Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, beef prices are up, and the Biden administration is pumping more money into the system in an effort to fix the problem. But is this a viable solution or just another example of the limits of government when it comes to our economy? Eric Bame, a reporter for Reason Magazine, joins us on the line to discuss why our expectations of the commander-in-chief just can't fix the markets. Uh, just not realistic to expect that. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Boyd. <laughs> I love the title of uh, – you, you, you've had so many great pieces uh, in the last little bit uh, on this very issue. Uh, but one of them with the title, No America, President Joe Biden is not Santa Claus – uh, I think uh, is very indicative of what some people wish he would do uh, in terms of the supply chain. Well, sure. And I think there's this uh, narrative out there in, in the media and a narrative that the White House has uh, has obviously helped along of, uh, you know, of Joe Biden is going to do something to solve uh, this supply chain crisis. And and I wish that were true. I mean, I really kind of do that the president could snap his fingers or or something, uh, call up his elves maybe, and, uh, and just get all the you know all the supply chain issues dealt with. That's that's just not true, and it's sort of the inverse of a thing that we as libertarians talk about a lot when we talk about the economy. And it is that like government just can't actually manage the economy because of of the lack of knowledge, right? Like the, the government, even with all the data that we have, uh, it's very difficult to to manage the minutia of the economy. And then this is kind of the flip side of that same of that same problem. It is that, uh, you know, there, there are sort of sprawling issues in the supply chain right now, some of which were created by or exasperated by government, others uh, that are that are just sort of working out problems that came up during the pandemic. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just not literally not possible for the White House to direct this solution. Yeah. And while that would be a great title for a Disney movie, uh, I don't think we're going to be seeing that in theaters anytime soon, that the president's going to save uh, Christmas and the holidays and mm. and even the supply chain. And I want to get into some of these things that you <clears throat> that you mentioned, Eric, in terms of uh, some of the problems in the supply chain are because of government. Some of it is overregulation in a number of different places uh, from from the federal level and down to the state level there in the state of California. Uh, give us a little lay of the land in terms of some of those things that may be inhibiting the supply chain from actually functioning on its own. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the big problems is uh, at the at the ports, and that is uh, in California in particular, there's an issue there with uh, some of President Biden's friends, right, his union friends that uh, have worked out a, a contract with the city of Los Angeles where uh, the port until recently was not operating 24-7. They've uh, blocked 
the, uh, the the automation of uh, of the unloading of boats, uh, which is obviously something the unions don't like, but this is now commonplace around the world. Any of the big uh, ports uh, globally are, are highly automated, and that really is basically not happening at the, the big port in Los Angeles. Um, and this is one of the reasons why American ports in general score so lowly. Uh, there's one survey out there done by a logistics firm that has the, the, not a single port in the United States ranks in the top 80 globally for efficiency. Uh, Philadelphia is the highest rated one in the United States. I think it ranked 83rd or 88th, something like that. Uh, the port in Los Angeles is ranked in the 300s globally. So, I mean, this is a huge wow. port that uh, obviously we depend on for a, a lot of goods. That come into the country, and it's just uh, you know there there are obviously issues there, uh, systemic issues there, ones that, that go back uh, you know years that uh, are not going to be fixed quickly. It's I guess it's good that we've got some attention on them now, uh, and hopefully they they will be fixed in the long run. But it's not something that is going to work itself out by Christmas time. Yeah, and a lot of those uh, are just uh, again things that go up and down, and things that we don't often think about. The uh, the supply chain is is really like the you know the electricity or the water in your house. You know, if you're as long as your faucet goes on or your shower comes out with you know nice warm water on it, uh, you don't much think about it until it doesn't, and then when it doesn't, then suddenly we're we're evaluating everything. I know part of the the challenges uh, down there in terms of moving things is you know lack of truck drivers, longshoremen. Uh, again, some of the the union in, imposed things, some of the lack of innovation in terms of automation. Uh, what else is there that we should be looking at in terms of the long term? These are obviously not things that are going to be done overnight. But what should we be most worried about? We we spoke to uh, Robert Spinlove uh, earlier in our program uh, about this idea of we've we've been living off of just in time uh, manufacturing, and and now sure. now it no longer is just in time. It's a little late. Uh, do we need to have more back in the in the U.S.? What are some things that can be done there? I think there's probably some of that that will happen naturally. And again, I think there's there's sort of a, a push you hear in, in politics on both the right and the left to you know talk about oh we need to mandate reshoring of supply chains or mandate reshoring yeah. of manufacturing. Um, I don't I don't think those solutions are going to come from Washington. I think to the extent that that is part of the solution, it's going to be implemented by private companies and and in many cases, in some cases at least, already has been those. Those businesses certainly have an incentive to uh, to fix these problems as quickly as possible, and, and if that involves bringing supply chains back uh, into the United States or, or changing, you know, that sort of last minute delivery model, uh, those those things will be done. Uh, those assessments will be made. Um, I think you know we also kind of I think overlook the extent to which government has made this problem worse. And this is this is particularly true with uh, the sort of worker shortage that we're seeing, which, as you just talked about, you know, lack of truckers, lack of dock workers, uh, lack of, of people in, in many different jobs throughout the economy. That's a fundamental part of this supply chain crisis that we have right now. Uh, just today, J.P. Morgan put out a, a big report sort of looking at the uh, the trends of, of workers and, and why there's just sort of this big gap between the number of jobs, number of available jobs, and the number of workers to fill them. Uh, and they found that, uh, you know, people earning more from unemployment benefits than they could find uh, a job to pay them that amount was a significant factor, something like uh, something like 10 percent of, uh, of people who are not, you know, entering the labor force cited that as a factor. Another big thing is immigration and visa issues mm. that have been uh, – there's a long backlog of people that want to come into the country legally right. to work right. uh, and just can't do it because, again, the, that's the government standing in the way of uh, of bringing more workers into the economy to help move things along. Yeah. So 
those types of things. That's the thing that you, you would hope Biden would look at and say, OK, here's stuff that I can do that we can do in Washington to fix this crisis right now yeah. and let the private businesses handle their business. Yeah, I want to sneak in one more just really quick. Uh, sure. we, we, we often talk about, uh, you know, the president and, and, you know, don't just stand there, do something. And, and I'm one of those who thinks the opposite is that often we should say, you know, <laughs> don't do something, stand there. And you actually looked at the beef industry uh, where the government has been you know, throwing some money at it in an effort to look like they were doing something. Uh, give us just a real quick snapshot of uh, why that doesn't work or why that isn't working. Yeah, so beef prices are obviously going up quite a bit, and that's something that I think anybody who's been to the grocery store recently uh, has probably noticed. Uh, the uh, White House has put in something like, I think it was $500 million, uh, yeah, $500 million in aid and loan guarantees to small beef producers to try and, uh, again, just to try to like get more supply into the chain, uh, get more supply out there into the grocery stores. Uh, the, the problem is, like, this is, again, one of these things that's going to take a while to work itself out. It takes about $200 million just to build a single new meat processing plant. That's, that's you know, wow. just a, a mid-sized meat processing plant. So you're talking about the amount of money that the federal government is throwing at this problem which is not an insignificant amount of money. $500 million is a lot, but it just doesn't actually go all that far. It gets you like what, maybe one or two more meat processing plants that will come online a couple of years from now. Um, so that, I think yeah, that really speaks to the, the ability of government to solve these problems and the amount of money necessary. Now, you can also sort of picture a world in which the White House says, well, we're going to throw $50 billion at this problem, right? Yeah. But that comes with all sorts of other knock-on consequences. We'd have a beef czar or something like that, probably <laughs> regulating That's the, the price of, of beef. <laughs> right. And then there's all those sorts of problems that, that would create from there. You just have you know people lobbying uh, in D.C. Yeah. for uh, for government policies that benefit them. So uh, it's it's a it's a it's just that that's the difficulty here with having government trying to get government involved in these supply chain issues is uh, too light a touch and it's yeah. insignificant, too heavy a touch, and you have too many other long term negative consequences. Yeah, Eric Bame, a reporter for Reason Magazine, great insight as always. We're going to continue to look at the supply chain, what government can and cannot do or should not do. Coming up next, Miles Hansen from World Trade Center Utah is going to join us to discuss the global impact of the supply chain crisis for exporters, importers, consumers right here in the state of Utah. Stay with us. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.